All right, well, if you are a guest with us, uh, I want to say a special welcome to you and um, thank you guys for the happy birthday. We do need to kind of work on that pitch a little bit. It's a little bit pitchy, but, but I do thank you uh, for singing that to me. Um, today, as we're wrapping up our second week in our annual two-week series that we do on the sanctity of life, um, and next week we'll be jumping into our new series through First Timothy That'll take us all the way through May, and then we'll jump into uh, the book of First Kings and then Second Kings, um, as we typically go: New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, typically. But but today is what is recognized um, across many uh, Christian denominations uh, in America as the Sanctity of Life Sunday, because tomorrow is the 45th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Um, that made abortion on demand legal in all 50 states, um, leading to an estimated, I think I wrote 50 million, but I looked it up um, since then, it's actually a little closer to 60 million uh, babies who've been aborted since that um, went through in 1973. And so today is set aside as a day where uh, churches just on the calendar contend for the sanctity of life, the sacredness of all Human life, and to be honest with you, I loathe this day. I hate it. Um, not because I don't value life, but because we even have to have a day like this to talk about the fact that life is valuable and should be protected and should be guarded. And there's any doubt that human life, all of it, is worthy of protection. And so I long for the day when there are no more Sanctity of Life Sundays because the world led by the church finally gets it. And so I long for that day, but we're not there yet. We've made great strides even uh, in the last year or so. There's been steps politically toward that gives more hope, and so we're, ex- we're glad about that, but we're not there. And so until that day, we keep fighting, we keep pressing, and we keep Psalm... I'm going to make a verb out of this. Psalm 82-ing. Here's what it says. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. But I want us to notice something here as we come to talk about sanctity of life today. I want you to notice all the terms that were used there in Psalm 82. That we are to seek justice not just for the weak and the unborn, but also for the fatherless, the afflicted, the destitute, weak again, the needy, and we deliver them from the hand of the wicked. All right, elsewhere in Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 10, you see the same appeal for justice for the sojourner, which is just a synonym for immigrant, a refugee. You see the same appeal for those with diseases and disabilities. And so as we come to this issue this morning and talk about the sanctity of life, 45 years after Roe v. Wade, I want to make sure that we don't just pigeonhole sanctity of life as exclusively the right to life of the unborn. It is that. Absolutely. But it's not only that. Okay, that's not the only sanctity of life issue. And the Bible calls us to a concern and a care 
for all of it, all of human life. That we would live out a holistic and consistent life ethic. Okay, the Bible over and over. I mean, you just read, you can read the Psalms only and see over and over and over this call to a holistic and consistent valuing of human life. You go to the New Testament, you see it's an ethic built out of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who came to save sinners from the wrath of God that we all deserve. Every single person on the planet is a sinner. And we all deserve God's wrath. But Jesus came into the world to save us from our sin. And so he gave his life for those who despised him. He died on the cross in our place for our sins so that we could be rescued. He rose again in victory and power, guaranteeing salvation for all who believe. And note, he did this at enormous personal cost. To himself. And so now we, those of us who claim the name of Christ, with Jesus as our authority and our example, are called to do just as we saw our Lord do in his life minister in word and deed. And so because he served us, we serve others. Because he cared for us, we care for others. Because he loved us at great cost, we love others at great cost. Because he helped us, we help others. Because he laid down his life and his rights for us, we lay down our life and rights for others. Because he rescued us, we'll seek to rescue others. Spiritually and physically. They go together. This is what Jesus did in his life. Healing and teaching, serving and saving. And so as followers of Christ, we've been called this. This is an implication of the gospel. It is an outflow. And so again, as we talk about <clears throat> the sanctity of life, we're talking about all human life, every aspect. A holistic and consistent life ethic that all humans, every single person is made in the image of God. And so really, it's just a continuation of the basis of what we talked about last week with racial reconciliation. Because biblically, okay, consistent life ethic, biblically, the call to end the sin of racism and end the sin of abortion are one and the same because they are built out of the exact same theological foundation. But so often, at least societally, they seem to get bifurcated. And so just observation, just looking at American society in general, recognizing that there are exceptions, but you just look at our society, and it seems that too often the people who are combating racism are not the same people who are combating abortion. And the people that are combating abortion are not the same people that are combating racism. But for the Christian, these things go together. They go together. Because they flow from the same biblical principle, which is the sanctity of all human life. And so again, as we dial in today and we focus on the sanctity of life, I want, I want you to first of all recognize this call to a consistent 
and holistic life ethic that all humans, every single person, is made in the image of God. From the unborn, 60 million, to the orphan, to the widows, to elderly, to persons of disability and special needs, sex slaves and trafficked persons, the destitute, the impoverished, the starving, those struggling to survive because of dirty water, illegal immigrants, people of different religions, ethnicities, sexual orientations, and different philosophical and political persuasions, all are made, equally made, in the image of God. There's no gradations in the image of God, as MLK put it. Biblically, the sanctity of life encompasses all of this. All right, and so laying out kind of that big picture, overarching vision of all that the Scripture says that the value of, of, of all human life is intrinsic because of um, the image of God, I, I now want to kind of go back and lay out that foundation about the image of God. All right, and, and just answer, just lay that foundation. We do it every year. John even got into it last, last week. But why is life sacred? We have got to hammer that always because that's the basis of any contending for life. And so I want to go back and answer, you know, why is human life sacred? And then I want to pull out a couple of practical implications of what that means for us personally. And then I want to kind of talk specifically a little bit about abortion, as well as an aspect of the sanctity of life that is often overlooked, and that's individuals with special needs. And how it's not just about Typical people having a ministry towards those who have a special need, but actually the ministry that people who are affected by disability or special needs have towards those of us who are not affected. To the point that the Bible describes them, as Cody read a minute ago, as the indispensable ones. The weaker ones are the indispensable ones in the life of the church. And so that's where we're going. Why is life sacred? What does that mean? Zeroing in on a few things. So we got a lot of work to do. Maybe a little bit longer than normal today. Sorry, not sorry. But no, I am sorry. But stick with me. Stick with me, please. I'll make it up to you next week. Promise. I take that back. I can't promise that yet. <clears throat> I'll try. I can promise that. And so, why is life sacred? Alright, so we're going to be Genesis 1. Uh, why is life sacred? You can flip over to Genesis 1. But the answer, like, why is life sacred? Answer, because every human life has been made in the image of God. Alright, that's why. We've even laid that out a little bit. Every single human has been made in the image of God. Theologically, we call this the Imago Dei. That God has put something in mankind that distinguishes us off from the rest of creation. Right? Something that separates us from the rest of creation as magnificent and spectacular as the rest of creation is, mankind alone has been made in the image of God. Mankind alone possesses the Imago Dei. And so Genesis chapter 1, John read it, but I'm going to read it again. We'll start in verse 24. Chapter 1, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. I mean, God speaks, things happen. God speaks, things are created. That's His power. 
And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. Just to reiterate, it, he says, re rephrase it. In the image of God, He created Him. Male and female, He created them. And so humans are the crown jewel in all of God's creation because we alone have been made in the image of God. We have a spiritual, intellectual, and moral component that the rest of creation lacks. And so listen, we, uh, we got a dog this year, all right? And because in my house the ratio is five to one, we got a male dog. And because I'm a nerd, I named him Luther because 2017, 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, I'm a nerd. We named him Luther. And Luther is just a ridiculous dog. Like, he, he's got to be borderline genius for a dog. He is ridiculous. When we brought him home, eight weeks old, um, we're playing around with him in the house. I take him outside. He immediately goes potty. We go back inside. We play for a while. And then I'm like, let's go back outside. He immediately goes potty. I mean, he just like figured it out. Did he have some accents? Yes, he did. But like not that many. He just knew what to do. All right. Um, with Eden, like he, he, he will rough house with me and we'll play and we'll be rough. But with her, he's so much more gentle. I mean, she'll just like fall on him and he just takes it. He'll, she'll grab his tail. He just, I mean, he's just so gentle. Like he, he's just so smart. When he wants to be walked, he'll like go try to find his leash and drag it to you and just look at you holding his leash in his mouth. And when he wants something, he'll, he'll just one bark. Just like he doesn't sit there and bark, bark, bark. Just one and then he waits. So he wants to get out of his crate in the morning. One bark and then he just waits. And if we don't come in about five minutes, we'll do one more bark. All right, and then to go outside, same thing. When he wants to come back inside, same thing. When he wants to be fed, same thing. And so he's phenomenal. Just great dog. He can be by himself and be perfectly content. He can be around all of the family, be perfectly content. Doesn't shed. He's only destroyed one piece of furniture. Great dog. I love him. He's my buddy. We have some good man talks. And a lot of you also, you have awesome pets. You love your pets. Just like I love Luther. But none of our pets are of equal value as any person who has ever lived. Ever. Because no dog possesses the image of God. Only people do. And so that's why human life is sacred. God made us in His image. And so all of human life is sacred because all of human life images forth at least aspects of God. 
spiritual, moral, intellectual, creative, and image forth at least aspects of God. And so that's kind of the why behind all of this. But now let me kind of flesh out what this means because it actually has massive ramifications for every single person in this room as well as every single person on the planet. Because what this tells us What this tells me, what this should tell you, is that you matter. You matter. You are important. You have value and you have worth. Intrinsic. Because you've been made in the image of God. It means your life counts. And so for those of us who struggle sometimes with whether or not our life really even matters. When we do that, we're buying into a lie from the pit of hell. Because when God, I mean, think about when God chose to create something in His image, in the image of the eternal Creator God of the universe, He created mankind. And so think about this with me. God's created this amazing world. We love it. Oceans, mountains, rivers, lakes, whatever you're into, whatever you like to do. I'm hoping to, John and Chad will do part of it with me, but I'm hoping to do about 70 miles on the Appalachian Trail in April. Get out in nature, love nature, love mountains, right? That's my deal. But those are just little mountains, and they're little. Like, go out to the Rockies, those are real. But even that, I love it, right? There's just mountains and you look at the entire earth and you go out from that and you look at the entire solar system that God made. It's all a little deal on um, line this week that talked about how we have no way of really conceptualizing the immensity of even just the Milky Way. Because every time we see a model of like the sun and, and size comparisons of the planets, it's not even ever even close to scale. And so these people went out to the desert uh, in New Mexico to try to set up something to scale. So to scale with the earth the size of a marble. Alright, so this is to scale with the earth the size of a marble to get the orbits of all of the planets. It took seven miles. Scale. The earth is a marble. Seven miles to get the outer orbit and I don't even know if they counted Pluto as a planet or not. Scale. Immense. Stars that you look up at, that the light that we're seeing took thousands of years to get here traveling at 186,000 miles per second. It took thousands of years to get here. God made angels. He made seraphim and cherubim. He made all of these amazing things. And then you think about the fact that we as humans alone are made in the image of God. That we are more like our Creator than anything else. That we are the culmination of God's infinitely wise and skillful work of creation. I should fill you with purpose and value that you matter. And not just cosmically in the sense of mankind, but down to the personal level as well. 
When John was praying, he quoted from it, but I'm going to read to you Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. This is personal. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God did that personally for each one of you, wiring you the way he wanted to. With a purpose. Like you're created on purpose for a purpose. The psalmist goes on and says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Folks, this is you. This is how God has made you. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Listen to this. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so God has intricately woven you individually, all right, and woven into you gifts and talents individually for His glory and for mankind's good. He's imprinted His image upon you. Angels don't have it. Mountains don't have it. The solar system doesn't have it. Stars don't have it. Your dog doesn't have it. Only mankind has it. And so just really practically speaking, again, what does this mean for us? It means you have value. You matter. You're important. You have dignity. You have purpose. Your life counts and is sacred. You matter to God. Every single person in here. And you know who else it's true for? Every single person on the planet matters to God. Made in His image. On purpose. With a purpose. Woven intricately in their mother's wombs. Fearfully and wonderfully made. And so every life Every human life has value. Every human life has worth, has dignity, counts, is sacred because it's been made in the image of God and equally made in the image of God. There's no gradations. There's not like some people are more in the image of God and others are less. No. Equally made in the image of God. And so that's why prejudice and racism shrivel up and die as we reflect that all humanity is equally created by God in His image. And so that's why abortion is such an affront to God. It's an assault on His image bearers. And so I want to chat about that a little bit. And just statistically. One out of every four women have had an abortion. So what that means is just statistically in that room, in this room, there are perhaps dozens of ladies who've had an abortion. And that's not even counting parents who may have forced it. Or boyfriends who forced it or who left because their girlfriend would not go along with their request. And so if you're in that group, and if you're in Christ, listen to me, you are forgiven. 
In Christ, you are washed clean. There is no sin that has more power than the cross of Christ. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. And so if that thought ever creeps up, not me, not me, I've gone too far, that is a lie. But you don't know what I've done. Here's the good news. It doesn't matter what you've done. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, in our place, for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins, for God made Him being Jesus who knew no sin, that is, He's not a sinner, to become sin, He takes on our sin, so that through Him we might become the righteousness of God. That that transaction takes place. He gives us His, He takes our sin and He gives us His righteousness. Jesus takes our sin. He gives us His righteousness. And there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. None. It's gone. So no guilt, no shame, no condemnation. That is gone. Jesus took our sin. He gave us His righteousness. Therefore, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so listen to me. In Christ Your sin is gone. Your guilt is gone. Your shame, let it be gone. Don't reshackle yourself to it. Jesus paid to set you free. Don't reshackle yourself to it. We've been set free. Everyone who has trusted in Jesus has been set free. And anyone who would repent and believe can be set free. And so if you've never trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, trust Him. Trust Christ. And He will forgive you. He will wash you clean. He will give you His righteousness so that you can stand before the Father holy and blameless, not on the basis of anything you've done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. So trust Christ. Trust Him. Even today. And so through Christ, God forgives and He sets free. But in that freedom, we move forward for the glory of God and the good of mankind. And so we've got to talk about abortion. So tomorrow again, 45 years since Roe v. Wade resulting in an estimated 60 million aborted babies. I do this pretty much every year, but just to kind of put that into perspective, if you take Nissan Stadium, which holds 70,000 people, 60 million babies, the equivalent of that would be filling up Nissan Stadium every day for the next two years and four months and killing everybody who enters the gates. That's the number of people. It's the American Holocaust. And my prayer is that my grandchildren will look back on this time period in our country when it's, when it's over and done away with, and they will look back on this time period like we now look back on slavery and even more rest recently on segregation and just think, how? How could you do that to people made in the image of God? 
I don't think it's going to happen because of hypocrisy and illogic that we live in with relation to abortion. So let me just expose some of these hypocrisies. If a woman got in her car today and was driving to the abortion clinic, and on the way to the abortion clinic, she had a wreck, and the baby died, right? someone rammed her, someone T-boned her, and the baby in her womb died, that would be vehicular homicide. That's how it would be counted for the baby. But if she made it to the clinic, it's just a choice. Same end result, death of the baby. One's homicide, and one's a choice. And when you think about this, to the, I mean, it is a scary world when the criteria for life becomes being wanted. That begins to sound a bit like Nazi Germany. If you're wanted, you can live. If you're not wanted, we'll kill you off. Then someone's like, but it's a woman's body. She can do whatever she wants with her own body. Well, one, I disagree with that premise entirely. There's two bodies. But even if we concede the point, it still falls flat because a woman or a man cannot do whatever they want to do with their body. That is not true. Who do I want to pick on? I'll pick on Brad. Brad's my neighbor. I may not be loving my neighbor as myself right now because I'm picking on him, but can't do whatever you want with your body. If Brad goes out to Noinsville Road, strips and streaks, he's going to jail. Can't do whatever he wants with his own body. You can't. That's not a true statement. You can't go prostitute yourself. It's my own body. No, you'll go to jail for that. It is a false statement that a person can do whatever they want with their own body. So that falls flat, even if you concede that point, which I already disagree with. Just more inconsistency. You can be at the hospital where in one room they are doing fetal surgery in the womb to save the life of a baby, while down the hall they're doing something else to end the life of a baby. Or even a little game of when life actually begins. It's when the baby starts moving. It's when it's born and takes its first breath. Biblically, we know that life begins at conception. Psalm 139, Psalm 58, Psalm 51, Job 14, Job 15, Job 31, Luke uh, Luke 1. I could keep going with these. And if you were like, well, it's got to have brown brain waves. Eight weeks. Brain waves are firing. The baby has to be able to survive outside their womb. They have to be able to survive on their own. That's the criteria for life. Well, then there's a lot of people in hospital that need to die. Are you on dialysis? No more. Do you have an oxygen tank? Take it away. This is illogical. These statements are hypocritical. And so I pray that as our eyes are open to this and science is helping with this, science now says that it's life. And John and I were talking this morning and science is like all the time looking, oh, if we can just find an amino acid on another planet, we'll know that there's life. 
When you have a heart beating in someone's tummy, that's not life, that's a collection of cells. That doesn't make sense. And so I pray that we will open our eyes. And I pray that we will recognize that the sanctity of life and contending for the unborn can't just be about the unborn. It, first of all, it's got to be about the mother. Her life is it's the sanctity of her life as well. We've got to care for the mother. I talked at length about that last year. And so this whole idea of abortion, it bleeds over to the next thing that I want to talk about, and that's individuals with special needs. Because have you heard what's happening in Iceland? Iceland has made it a law that all babies in utero must be tested for Down syndrome. And even here in America, the rate of abortion for a child who, who people know has down syndrome in the womb, the abortion rate is between 70 and 90%. But in Iceland, if you come, like, you have to have the test. And if it comes back with a positive test result, then they push and push and push using scare tactics and intimidation to all but force you to have an abortion. It's, an, it's essentially a 100% abortion rate. I just can't kind of give you some context. One in every 691 births results in a, is the birth of a child who has Down syndrome. And so in the U.S., if there are 4 million babies born... That means around 6,000 of those babies will be born with Down syndrome. Now, it's not 4 million babies being born in uh, Iceland. But still, do you, do you know how many babies were born last year in Iceland who have Down syndrome? One. Every single other child with Down syndrome was aborted because they hold a position that a person's worth is determined by contribution to society and the GDP, and this person does not contribute enough to society. In fact, they, they, they inhibit the GDP. They're, they're takers, not producers, therefore not worthy of life. And again, when we get to that place, that is a scary place. Biblically, a person's worth is not defined on anything other than the fact that they are made in the image of God. And so you've got this whole country that very soon will be missing people with Down syndrome. But branching out from just Down syndrome to include all individuals with special needs, whether those are a physical need or a cognitive need or both... You want to know another place where people and individuals with special needs are often missing? The church. The church. And praise the Lord, this is ever increasingly ceasing to be the case here. We're blessed to have several individuals in our church who have a special need of one type or another and lots of people who've lately been uh, visiting 
and may become members as we move along. But, but even we, probably the mo- most conscientious and purposeful church in, in Nolensville as it relates to love and care for individuals with special needs, even we do not match the 1 to 16 ratio that is the general population of children who have a special, special need. 6.3% of all children. Which, and it's even a lower ratio for adults. Like you get over the age of 75 and it's 53% who have considered to be disabled. So, so you live long enough, disability will touch every single person in here. Whether you have it or not, a parent, a loved one, siblings will be considered disabled. But this, you know, talking about the church missing not having many people in the church's big picture, capital C church, who have a special need. I was completely not out of meanness or 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 or, or purposeful, but just out of ignorance. I just didn't know what I didn't know. And so that's been a lesson to me about a whole host of things that I just don't know what I don't know about people in different categories or stripes of life because I'm not there. But when Eden was born, it opened my eyes to a whole new set of things that I had never even considered before. I had no idea that 85% of families who have a child with special need are unchurched, which according to the IMB would render them an unreached people group. I get it now. I understand why that's the case. I mean, as a first-time guest and all you parents, you know what it's like when you walk into a new church and with a typical child, like just kind of the nervousness that it is to, to um, check a child into child care. All right, that's already hard and we work hard to make that as smooth as possible and as easy as possible with all the policies and procedures and, and, and things that we put in place for the safety, care, and fun of the children. But it's still a little bit, you know, nerve-wracking at first time until you get to know some folks. But imagine then, if it's already nerve, nerve-wracking, then imagine checking in a child who's medically or developmentally fragile and possibly nonverbal. How scary that is. And then on top of this, many churches have never even taken the time to think and pray about ministering to a child who has special need of some sort. And so when a family does finally show up, all right, and they're so brave to even try that, they're unprepared. And frankly, the child care workers are a little bit terrified as well because ignorance and fear of the unknown based on unjustified stereotypes continue. And so you've got people who've taken this bold step to even give it a try, and then they come and they meet a church that's unprepared, or sadly, even some churches act annoyed. Or like these children and their families are not deserving of effort. I've actually heard stories of people being asked to not come back because their child was too loud, too messy, couldn't keep up, was too touchy, whatever. And so families decide that attending a church gathering is too difficult or worse. They conclude that while churches claim to be for the hurting, they're only for a certain kind of hurting. A hurting that doesn't take too much effort. 
Now, if you're a guest here at Providence, pretty much everything I've just said is false of our church. If you have a child with a special need or know an adult with a special need or are perhaps an adult with a special need, none, none of what I've just said is true. We're not perfect in this, but we are intentional. We have a plan and we will make it work with anyone. One of the things that we do, and John leads out on this, is we do something called, we take the kind of the public school idea of an IEP, an individualized education plan, and we create an ISP, an individualized spiritual plan. So we sit down and we work with parents to make whatever needs, whatever accommodations need to be made so that your child can be fully included. So we practice inclusion here, fully included, whatever needs to take place in cooperation with the parents, because the parents are the experts on their children, not us, we work and we develop this ISP and we put it into place. And so we need lots and lots of buddies at times to help with those things. So if you are interested in loving people, please talk with John, sign up, get some training about being a buddy. So that's one of the things we do. And the reason we do this, folks, is not to be PC. It's to be like Jesus. Because think about his ministry. Think about his life for a minute. Disability ministry was a daily norm for Jesus. Just a normal component of what he did on earth. He was always ministering to and through those with a disability of all ages, of all types of disability or special needs, all levels of cognitive understanding. Now you can go back and look yourself. I looked. 23 of Jesus' 35 miracles recorded in the Gospels involve individuals affected by disability. 23 of 35. And his whole life and ministry was built on dealing with those in the margins of life, bringing them in. And he spoke to them, he touched them, he loved them, he healed them. And so when the God of the universe so clearly values those who are suffering from something, or just, you know, they, they have, should not we be concerned as well? Like holistically? Loving and including and making sure that they're not discriminated against? I mean, even though ADA that President George H.W. Bush signed into law in 1990, where he commented on the need to end the unjustified segregation and exclusion of persons with disabilities from the mainstream of American life, even though that has done so much, a couple of things. One, churches are not forced to enforce it. Churches don't have to do ADA. You should so that all people have access to get into your church and can go to the restroom and all those sorts of things. If you're not doing that, what are you saying to them? But even though that's done so much, and I'm so thankful for him and that, there's still all kinds of prejudices and discrimination based upon unjustified stereotypes that continue to put many people with individual, many individuals with special needs in a position of helplessness and hopelessness. One small example I'll give you. Did you know that I cannot name Eden in my will or she will not be able to have certain benefits? I can't name her in my will. That's ridiculous. So people who have a child who have a special need can't do that. 
then they've got to go around to work a system with lawyers paying thousands of dollars to lawyers to work something so that they can set up long-term care for Eden. So I'm going to let you in on a secret. Do you know why I work out as much as I do? It is not because I'm trying to be some sort of something. I'm still rail thin, right? It is because I hope to outlive Eden. I can't control it. I could get cancer tomorrow and drop. Cannot control that. But insofar as I can, if I can, that's a terrible prayer to want to outlive your child, to want to bury him. I don't want to bury him. I want to live a long, healthy life, but I want to be here so that she's not on the girls. Right? But I can't name her my will. Ridiculous. That's part of sanctity of life, contending for those sorts of things. Even in politics. So we need to have concern, we need to have care, we need to have love. Just so let me just give you some super simple steps on some things about language. Because language reflects and influences perceptions. So number one, don't refer to people who have an, a special need as that special needs boy or that autistic girl or that Down syndrome boy. You are putting on that child. Like they have no chance of just being a child. You are labeling them and putting an identity on them. So Eden is not a Down syndrome girl. She's just a girl who happens to have Down syndrome. Totally different way of looking at it. A totally different way of identifying it. Let's not define people that way. All right? Secondly, don't refer to an individual who does not have a special need as normal. And therefore, those who do have a special need are not normal. Plant that seed in a child's heart and mind. You're not normal because you're in a wheelchair. Typical. That's a better word to use. Typical. Typical and non-typical. Get away from normal. Again, I didn't know any of these things prior to happening, so this is not like, this is just, now I know. Obviously, I hope, strike the R word from your vocabulary. It is offensive in any and all settings, even when it's used in a self-deprecating manner. Or even just the kind of offhanded, well, don't mind him, he's special. Where do you think that comes from? It's deprecating a whole group of people as a punchline for a joke. When a child is born who has a disability, don't apologize to the parents. I'm so sorry. Congratulate the parents on the birth of their beautiful son or beautiful daughter. These are, folks, these are small little wording tweaks, but they'll communicate to the world that we are trying to Speak the correct language. When you go into a missionary context, you first learn the language. Well, this is a missionary context, so let's learn the language. Let's use the language. But it's not just about ministering to individuals with or families of individuals with special needs, whether they're children or adults. It's also about the individuals ministering to those of us who don't have special needs. Because in a lot of ways, individuals who are affected by disability are the best visual aids of God's truth. 
See, through their disability and their love of Jesus, they teach others in the church how to cling to the cross with all that they have and embrace difficulty and embrace suffering in a Christ-exalting manner, seeking to see God work even in the midst of it. That's why 1 Corinthians 12.22 says that the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And so I think about this with me. In the body of Christ, right? we often admire the hands and the feet and the eyes and the lips and all the showy upfront parts that are attractive and we like to see. But nobody talks about the pancreas. It may not be the most attractive thing in the world. And some people don't really talk about it. But the body can't live without it. The body can live without hands. The body can live without feet. The body can live without eyes. The body can live without hearing. But a body can't live without the pancreas. It's indispensable, though it's not up front and showy. This is why weaker members are indispensable. People who have special needs, whether that's quadriplegia, Parkinson's, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, just the ravaging effects of old age or anything else. These people showcase Titus 2.7, show yourself to be a model of good works. They set an example. They showcase the Lord's ability to others. They sustain those who face lesser difficulties. They show people how to cling to the cross in a way nothing else can. And so this is not an off-to-the-side nice ministry to pitiable, poor, unfortunates who need help. No, this is up-front, in-your-face demonstration of these lessons. And it's a means for showcasing redemption to everyone and helping them learn how to respond to their own afflictions as well as helping them understand God's motives in the midst of their own suffering. God doesn't like really will evil or suffering, but He redeems it and uses it. He uses it. And so as Joni Erickson Tata puts it, God sometimes allows what He hates, suffering, in order to accomplish what He loves, redemption. And so may we love and better value the indispensable ones around us in this church and outside of this church. Let's get more indispensable adults and children here by speaking language well. And may we contend for the sanctity of all humans. Unborn and everyone else. Any label we want to slap on them. May we contend for all humans holistically and consistently until the sanctity of life Sunday ceases to exist because it's not needed anymore. We value life like the Bible does, like Christ does. Let's pray.
Father, would you forgive us for our lack of valuing life? Every single one of us in here, to some degree or another, in one way or another, Lord, we are all culpable in in an inconsistency. I am. Everyone is. Because we're sinners. And don't get it right. But Father, may, may, may we stumble forward. May we stumble forward. Father, would you help <clears throat> abortion come to an end? Father, would you Help us more highly regard indispensable ones. Would you help? May you help us with our language. May you help us be holistic and consistent in our life ethic. May you help us be empathetic and sympathetic as we engage with those who might disagree with us. And would you help us to be loving, caring, and persuasive based upon your word and just show your word and trust your word to do work in time. And so God, we thank you for all that has happened. And we praise you, God, just even for the personal, like, I matter. My life is not a waste. I have purpose. I was created on purpose by you, the Almighty, for a purpose. And I matter to you. And so, Father, may that fill our hearts with hope and gratitude. And then for those of us who have trusted Christ, not only have we been made by you, now we've been adopted by you into your family and loved as a child with a father who loves us and is for us. And so work in us, God. Fill us with hope and with joy and with resolve to contend for the sanctity of life. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.